0: I'm Daniela welcome to my podcast because everyone has a story the place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved Our stories become the language of connections let's enjoy it connect and relate because everyone has a story welcome my guest Kristen Donnelly Kristen is an international empathy educator and TED speaker. Her company is called The Good Doctors of Abbey Research. She also reads three to 400 books a year. Yes, you heard me right. Kristen's mission is to help people understand the different concepts that could change the world through empathy. You will have to listen further to see what I mean. I stumbled upon Kristen's TED Talk and I thought it would be great to have her share her story here on BeHas. It was beautiful to converse with Kristen. She shares her passion and vulnerability. With her story, I learned that there are also fears and flaws behind a strong, passionate, caring and good woman. Because we are human. Those who truly love us will accept the whole package of us. This is what life is all about, learning and growing to become better human beings. Or, as Kristen says, to be human is hard work, and we could human better. <laughs> Embracing other cultures and accepting others will make the world better. Sometimes our brain and thoughts can betray us by forgetting compassion, empathy, and respect. But we know how to get back to the right path. Let's enjoy her story. Welcome, Kristen, to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here.
0: Yes, I am so honored too. Reading all your background, I'm so, so excited that you're here. So tell me why do you want to share a story with us?
1: Because all of us expand our humanity and change our minds and grow through stories and relationships. We don't through shame or statistics. We might change behavior. But we change our minds and we expand our existence through stories. And I have been so changed through stories that I am always grateful for an opportunity to tell one of my own.
0: Yes, that's true. And because when you listen to stories, you also grow compassion, which I think is like a key word for everything. Yes. So, Kristen, when does your story start?
1: My story honestly starts when I was young. My story is a lot about how I came to understand that the more you know about the world, the less stressed out you are by it. And that journey really started when I was young. I was born into a family that would eventually go on and we own a family business. We have for about 32 years. It's in second generation now. My brother and I co-own it and run it. My father was the primary driver of that business for a long time. And what my parents, both my mom and my dad, were very careful to teach my brother and I is that every human you meet is a human. So it doesn't matter where you're born. It doesn't matter how you're born or to who you're born. Everyone makes a series of choices and everybody has choices made for them by their parents, by their circumstance, by the postcode they were born into. And the measure of a human is what you do with that combination of choices, not anything else. And innately, everybody is is worthy and wonderful and loved and broken and beautiful. And everybody is a human. And we were taught this explicitly through activities that we did where literally when I was grounded or I had to write book reports for my dad in leadership development. Um, So I was never allowed to wallow and I was never really allowed to um, feel sorry for myself. But I also was not ever supposed to compare myself to other people. So we knew that we had been born into incredible privilege. And so our responsibility is is to then leverage our privilege for the power of other people. They are not less than us. We are not more than them. I am not to feel guilty because we take vacations because we can afford it. My response is still to just turn around and show up in service whenever I can. And so this has been the narrative of my life. I was a youth worker for a long time. I have an undergraduate and adolescent psych. I have a social work degree, I have a divinity degree, and I and I have a doctorate, because my true way that I kind of understand that is that I love people, and I love how people work together in societies, and I love how people group themselves together. And so I took a path where I studied that professionally, and I learned how to ask better questions, how to listen richer, how to understand the planet a little bit more than I did from my own perspective. And from that, my business partner, my best friend, and I have started our own division of the family company where we're empathy educators and we spend our days helping people understand themselves and the world around them. And what I have learned is that the more, as I said at the beginning, the more I understand the world, the more I read about atrocities and hopes and the more I understand I get a deeper understanding of what it means to be human because I also more deeply understand what I can and cannot control. And so as I learn more about humans and I learn more about myself, I find myself just a lot more content with my role on the planet than I was prior to starting this real discipline of looking outside rather than it just being something that I was about. And like, I understood that humans are humans, but I've done an intentional practice of empathy over the last couple of years. And I've really noticed that my anxiety has gone to much more manageable levels than when I was just doom scrolling and panicking on Twitter (laughs) constantly. Um, So this is, this is one of, uh, one of the stories I'd love to share.
0: Do you have any situations when you were little and you were in school and maybe your classmates were saying things that you perhaps repeated at home and they were opposite of what your parents said? And then you got, I don't know, in trouble or you got a big lesson about it. Do you have any memories of that?
1: Not specific ones, but we were never in trouble for saying opinions. I remember mostly it was from church. There were things that were taught at my church that my parents sat me down and said, this is not the only way to be a Christian. This is not the only way to do Christianity or to do our faith. I was part of a really charismatic kind of Pentecostal youth group in seventh and eighth grade. And my parents sat me down and said, if this is good for you, that's great. But we don't think it is. And we want you to know it's a diff. There's different perspectives and kind of get that. You know, I got the garden variety bullying in middle school. I, in, in, sorry, in elementary school and middle school, I have always been a, a larger body and that has always been a problem for other people. And so I got made fun of a lot. And so a lot of my parents' talk was to remember that my worth is inside myself. And that means that everyone else's worth is inside themselves as well.
0: Hmm. That's, that's difficult, though, to you believe that immediately or it took you?
1: Oh, God, no, absolutely not. Did not believe them. No, I still struggle to believe for myself that my body doesn't matter. But they tried, they tried their best.
0: And your brother took a similar path? No,
1: my brother took a very different path. He is three years younger than I and he didn't finish college. He's been working in the factory that we own here and is married and has two kids and is a real homebody. But in terms of how we see the world, it's very similar. People are people. They deserve a chance to prove to you that they're a person in a certain way, we have a a policy where we take you at your value as an employee and also as a person. And we're both friends with a lot of different kinds of people, and we try really hard to make sure that we seek understanding rather than assumption.
0: Hmm, Wonderful. And so what happened? So you have created this business, uh, a, a division of your parents' business. And then how do you get so passionate about the subject of diversity, inclusion, and reading so much?
1: So my PhD is in northern is I did in Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland is a utterly fascinating little place that I love with my whole heart. But one of the things that it taught me is that understanding someone is not condoning them. And that there are never two sides to a story. There are always at least five. Five. Even if there's two people in the exchange and that's it, they are different on different days. They have different perspectives on things. The people who love them have different perspectives on things. Whenever Aaron and I read about something really traumatic happening and someone will say, you know, the news says, you know, five people were killed. Our thing is always, well, we don't actually know the body count because, yeah, those people died. But then there's other people who are traumatized. There's people that love them that now have to bury the people that they love. There's other people that live in now constant PTSD. We don't know the body count. We don't know truly what anyone's life is like, and we don't know what people are carrying. Some of it is just a really natural outgrowth of what I was raised to do. Combine it with being an outsider a lot. I was a, my master's degrees are from a university in Texas. I am from Philadelphia. I did not fit in for five years, and I felt othered and outsided and weird and judged and traumatized by all of that for five years. Then I'm an American who went to Northern Ireland. My husband is Northern Irish. We have a great marriage, but there's parts of his life and his family that I feel very on the outside of. I just got curious and imaginative and thought, huh, I wonder, I wonder if I feel this way, what other people must feel like. And so I started seeking out their stories. I started asking questions. I started listening to podcasts and watching more documentaries. And I started doing that. Honestly, in high school, I've always been a nerd. And I started reading as much as I do because I didn't have that many friends and I need more input. I'm an extreme extrovert and I need a lot of input from people. And so even the friends I did have, I was sometimes accused of being really needy because I needed a lot of their time. I needed to talk to them a lot. And after the fifth or sixth time where somebody broke up with me as a friend for being too needy, I realized I had to find other people to do life with and I found them in books.
0: So you were an extrovert who spent a lot of time reading and you want to share how many books you read a year? <laughs>
1: I read between three and 600 books a year. Oh, wow.
0: You did it since you were 11 reading that much?
1: I didn't start keeping track of things until I finished my PhD. Like there's definitely like when I was, you know, in graduate school, I read maybe a book a month and then I would read like 200 over the summer and just binge them. People binge television shows. I binge books. That's what I do. And I took a speed reading course in middle school. But when my parents talk about family vacations, they talk about the extra bag of book to bring. <laughs> and when I first started, like, I never go anywhere without a book ever. And now it's a lot easier because my Kindle's on my phone. Now, I was the kid that brought book to part- books to parties because what if I got bored and I could just find somewhere? I bring books everywhere. Books have always been stories. The written word have always been part of my life. And I always gravitate and have my whole reading life. I gravitate towards romance.
0: But yes, being an extrovert, I feel you need to have a lot of interaction with others. I do. Yeah. With the books though, you are just, you're reading, but what about you talking, right? That's the other part you're not having. It's true,
1: but my brain is moving. Uh, So I don't just need to be talking. What I need is that stimulation. I prefer, for sure, I talk more than most of my friends. I am friends with a lot of other introverts, with a lot of introverts. And I overwhelm them a lot. And I'm conscious of that. But what I really need more than anything else is stimulation. And so I can find that stimulation through talking. I can find it through stories, through reading. Um, but it means like I don't watch television on planes. I don't watch movies on planes. I fly a lot. My husband does. My husband's an introvert. But it's not enough stimulation for me. Like just watching something isn't enough. I need to be doing something with at least two senses. So I have to be holding something and and reading it. If I'm listening to an audiobook, I'm also playing a video game or I'm cross stitching or something else. I have to have multiple points of input. Um, but yeah, I, I just love, I also have really high anxiety. And so being alone with my own thoughts sometimes isn't particularly safe. So I can then fall into someone else's story. And take myself out of my own shame spiral or my own panic attack or my own whatever is happening and say, okay, I'm going to go and hang out with the Bridgertons right now. Their problem is going to be my problem. And then I'll come back when I'm a little bit more balanced.
0: Yes. And that's I guess that's what most people watch TV and you come from work and you just don't want to think about anything. And then you just watch TV so that whatever other life is presented to you, you don't have to think about anything. Some people have issues trying to concentrate on a book. Because what? Because you have to hold it and you have to read it? Yeah, and I think
1: people aren't really used to reading. And I think the other thing is that we're really precious about language. So people have this impression that we have to read absolutely every single word. And I don't think we always have to. I think skimming is okay. Before anyone gets angry, like, the authors put so much work into it. I'm an author. I know just how much work I put into it. If I've done my job, though, you can skim. And you can understand the point of my story. And then if you want to go back and dig into my language, I'm very proud of how I write. I think my, my imagery is beautiful, but everyone's coming to a different, to a story for a different reason. Some people, especially with romance novels, they're only there for the sex. And so they kind of skim everything else. And they're just looking at that. There's other people that are really there for the relationship build. So they'll skim all of the sex stuff. And because all they want is the slow burn of how these two people get together Everybody comes to stories for, with their own reasons and their own needs. And so if you don't need to read every single word, don't.
0: In that course that you took, the speed reading, do you think that people when they're adults can take it too?
1: Oh, I'm sure. I don't, could not tell you what course I took. It was online at the time. It was like early, early America online, early, early AOL. But yeah, I know people that take speed reading courses.
0: Even though they're older. Yeah, that's great. And so why the passion for romantic stories? novels when you know that that's not really the reality?
1: Well, to a certain extent, there's a lot lot of reasons. That's a very, for me, complicated answer and question. So first of all, some of them are reality. Some of them are the exact moments might not be. But my hope for everybody is that they are in a relationship that brings them a happily ever after. Doesn't mean it's not without hardship. Doesn't mean it's not without. But my deep hope for every human is that they find they're happy. And they find their joy and they find their love. So the fact that it ends in love, I hope, is not unreality. I hope it is reality for a lot of people. And most romance novels are really, really clearly structured. Like there's a pattern, there's a rhythm. Just like every reality show episode, just like every network series of television, humans understand learning in patterns. I call romance novels structured joy. You know what you're getting at the end of it, so you don't need to be stressed. You can enjoy the journey. I am also somebody who doesn't believe in spoilers. I'm spoiled on everything all the time because the more interesting question to me is how do we get there? I know what's going to happen. How do we get there? I am not like super in love with the, oh my God, there needs to be suspense. And even all suspense novels, they all end the same. They end with the bad guy in prison and the good guy not, you know, in whatever the prison is. People make fun of romance novels a lot. They say they're easy to write. They're not, I'll tell you. They, you know, make fun of them a lot. And one of the main reasons that we make fun of them is that they are predominantly female featured. And the idea of women centering their own physical and emotional pleasure is very scary to a lot of people, even subconsciously. And so the fact that there's an entire, that the largest genre of, of fiction out there, that the genre that keeps the lights on at a lot of publishing houses is a lot about women having orgasms, really, really stresses a lot of people out because we're taught that women's bodies are for procreation and that's it. And so what I love about romance is a whole lot of people, the first novels that told love stories were were really, were Jane Austen, although hers are social satire, they're not romance novels. So the first kind of set of books that set out what we now know as the pattern was in the early 1900s. So since the early 1900s, there have been people claiming that joy is important enough to spend time on. The escape I want is people being happy. The escape I want is people overcoming obstacles and doing it together. Romance novels are very famous for having huge groups of friends and huge sprawling families. A lot of them are about community. And a lot of them are about the fact that we're not supposed to do this life alone. Do romance novels have problems? Oh my God, so many. But I would take a romance novel any day over most New York Times bestsellers who peddle sadness. And I'm going to spend 500 pages hearing how sad someone is. Like, I don't read Jonathan Franzen books because I know that white people are sad. I'm good. I've got, I've got that message. I don't need that story. But I'll read every single Julia Quinn book because she's going to tell me how somebody finds love despite amnesia or despite a physical disability. And I want to be reminded that life is hard, but life is also the f- full of the overcoming of hard life is lonely and difficult and messy and ugly and all of those things that literary fiction tell us, all of those things that the popular books show us. But life is also full of love.
0: Yes. That's supposed to be the end of it. Love. We are all made of love and that's it. Yes, that's true.
1: And that's it. Also, my mother and grandmother read them. And so when I was 11 and looking for books to read around the house, those are the ones I picked up.
0: Yes. (laughs) And so what kind of books do you write?
1: I don't write books. I write fan fiction, which is our transformative works, and I largely write them about Marvel superheroes. Oh, I still write love stories because that's what I I love the most.
0: And powerful people,
1: love stories and powerful people, and people who believe in community and who believe in good versus evil.
0: Okay, so you write books, and then you also did some TED talks. How did you get involved with that?
1: Oh my gosh. Brilliantly. I have an incredible coach. Her name's Trisha Brooke and I've been following her work for years. Then I signed up. She does a two day masterclass called the art of the big circle or something, getting in the big circle or something. And I signed up during lockdown because I was bored. At that point, she made an offer for a longer masterclass. And it was 12 weeks. And at the end of it, you'll have your big talk written, she said. And I was like, OK, again, lockdown. I'm those to do. You know, it was a lot of just really kind of monotony. I think we can all remember 2020 as a, as a time of both intense trauma and intense monotony. And so I was looking for something different to do. So I signed up for the class. She organizes at the end an opportunity for people to give a virtual showcase of their talk. So I would I was selected to participate in that. And at the end of my seven minute talk, I knew I wanted to do a TED. And I knew I wanted to do a TEDx forever. I wanted to be in that red circle. If you're a speaker, it's one of the things that you want to do generally. I took a punt and started, I worked with her to to make sure that everything was, the application was well done and it was clear. And I landed my first talk about a week after the first one I applied for. And then I went on to give four in the span of eight months.
0: Wow, there are different subjects. They
1: have to be. Yep, the first one was out of that showcase talk. So it's a lot about under a true understanding of inclusivity. And then I have two on trauma and one on employee welfare.
0: Wonderful, yes. I wanted to ask you about the trauma. It's so important, right? I think that we all have to talk more about that subject because it happens all the time. Your TED Talk was really interesting as well. I really enjoyed it. So thank you for, for having that. And about diversity and inclusion you said that diversity is a reality. You said that inclusion is a goal and tolerance is a cheap imitation. How do you come up with those?
1: Oh, gosh. So I grew up in, um, in evangelicalism. And in the 90s in evangelicalism, we were obsessed with diversity. We were obsessed with let's have churches come together and grow diversity. And I kept getting really, really upset by it, because every time we did it, it was just Black people and white people. And we would just kept pretending that those were the only diversities. And then the more I thought about the word tolerance, the more I was like, I don't actually think we're supposed to tolerate each other. When you use the word tolerance in other context besides you know have tolerance or coexistence or or things like that that bumper sticker makes me hostile now when you think about that all it really does is say you get to stay with everyone you've ever known you get to think whatever you've thought and really you're just not allowed to kill that person because it's illegal (laughs) like you you don't you just you don't have to deal with them at all. And what that has done is continually fractured our society out into what it is now, where we don't know how to talk to each other. We don't know how to ask questions of difference. And people that we look like us, we assume are exactly like us, which isn't true. And we have flattened diversity to being just racial diversity. And we flatten racial diversity being just between often black and white people. And so we haven't in any way opened up the richness of the human experience and what all of the various combinations of things that a human is, what that richness can bring. So all tolerance is, is just someone is alive because you can't kill them. That doesn't do anything. It just means that we have laws that you can't kill people. We're going to actually do, the reason I say diversity is reality is that every human being is already diverse. You already carry diversity within you. You are not just one thing. You are not just a man, a woman, a non-binary person. You are also your race, your ethnicity, your family history, your if you have children or not. The age you were when 9-11 happened is a huge part of how we all interact with the world. We are all so many things all at once. So the true goal of any organization is to create an environment in which people can show up on their own terms. They can be whatever combination of those things they carry within themselves within your organization. So you don't just tolerate each other. You don't have the token person. You have an organization of humans who bring, yes, their expertise in supply chain management, but also their intense passion for Formula One car racing with them into the office, and it enriches all of our experiences. If you think about it, like, it really, truly, Family is a really toxic thing and work families are, you know, people say, stop using that word, but really break it down. A family is somebody who you tend to know each other outside of the you you present to the world, like your family, because they do life with you all the time. So whoever that is for you. There's a certain way in which I wish we would all work in family businesses and family oriented things because those people are like, hey, I know the mess you are and I still love you and I'm still going to choose you. And I know this piece of you that you're trying to hide. I know we need it right now. So like the best way that a family can function, the highest, healthiest, best way we can all human together in family units. I'm not entirely sure that we don't want to do that everywhere else. I know you. I know the fullness of you. I love you. I choose you. I accept you. And let's, let's do it together. And that can be what it looks like. Mileage may vary. Some people have a lot of baggage with the word family, which is completely valid. We just don't have another one. English is a limited resource. Realistically, we're all too many things at once to pretend we're just one thing.
0: That's true. And what do you think at work? Is that only the action of being more curious about each other?
1: Yeah, a huge part of it's curiosity. And understanding all of the ways that people can be different. So it's not just you're different racially or gender. There could be people in your office or your organization who are caring for parents. That's a way that possibly makes them different from you. You could have somebody in your office who has you know, a physical but invisible disability. That is something that makes them different. So somebody with military service, somebody whose faith is very important to them, somebody who has a specific dietary requirement. There's lots of ways in which we're different from each other. And if we could be curious about the broad range of that. So like, am I telling you to go up and start asking people about their childhood traumas? No. But like start getting curious about like, so what's your favorite movie? Do you watch sports teams? Are you a workout person? Where do you practice yoga? Do all of the really simple questions. And then once you kind of know this, the easier, low-hanging, fruity type things, you can get more curious about other stuff.
0: But so that seems like the job as a colleague of you, I will ask you questions and that will make me a better person. However, with management, when they are only believing in the on the bottom line of making money, employees are a number perhaps, or they don't really have time to care too much. When they want to do this diversity, what can they really do? I don't think that that's possible.
1: No, they can't. It becomes a tick box exercise and that's it. I am hopeful that increasingly with the Great Reshuffle, that the model of management that treats people as interchangeable cogs in a profit machine can slowly die. Because it's not. Humans are humans and no one is replaceable. I mean, very little makes me as hostile professionally as somebody saying everybody is replaceable. No, no one is replaceable. The position might be interchangeable. You may be able to get somebody to fill that position, but you still leave the human void. Um, no one is replaceable. And I've discovered that truly only toxic people say that everybody is, is replaceable. Um, and so it's, it, or they're in a toxic culture or they're in a toxic mindset that is toxicity. And that is not honoring or centering the human. I've said it when I was on a power trip, I didn't say, it cause I actually believed it. I said it because someone told me that powerful people say that. And when I sat down and thought about it, I was like, i don't actually believe that. But we, uh, we've been doing our business the way we've been doing it over 30 years, and we've still managed to, we've managed to make a lot of money, but we've also managed to center and hold people and profits in attention that is able to honor the human and keep the lights on. So it's possible, you just have to want to do it.
0: Yes, but then that's where the people on the top have to really care about other people so that when they leave, you can say, okay, you're not replaceable because of a human being, but their position is. But when, you know, when there isn't a big organization where people come and go, you just, you lose that for sure.
1: For sure. It's intentional. The way that we're doing life right now as people on the planet is easy. It's easy to be a manager that treats people like garbage. It's super easy it's a lot harder to be a manager that remembers that the 75 people that report to you are 75 human beings. It's intentional practice, which is why we teach empathy as the consistent, intentional decision to choose understanding over assumption. It's a practice. Being a human is hard work. Yes. It is hard. And we're not taught how to do it. And we're all fumbling along as we're doing it. And it's really, really difficult. The way we're doing life right now is just the lowest common denominator of everything. But good news is that really, in a certain way, there's a, there's a lot of room to go up. There is room to go to go below. We'd like to not go back to time before penicillin and labor unions. We've got a lot of room to grow. And I am convinced as I look at human behavior and group movement and everything else, it's not a really like difficult thing to treat someone like a human being. It's real simple. You just decide to remember they're a human it's a discipline thing that you've just got to do all the time. You've got to show up and do it all the time because then, so let's say you're a boss and you're treating somebody like garbage and you kind of say, you know what? Hey, I had this come to Jesus and I really realize I need to treat you all like people. They're going to come at you with all the ways that, that you've been terrible. And so you have a choice in that moment to go back to who you were or go, you're right. That wasn't great. How do we fix it? And you're going to be good at it for three days and you're going to be terrible at it on the fourth day. But the thing is, the people that work with you are going to be good at something for four days and terrible for five days. And that's how humanity works. So if we all just show up as broken, beautiful, imperfect humans and say, hey, this is my role in the organization. It doesn't make me better or worse than you. This is just my role. Here's the responsibilities that come with it. Here's all the things I've got to hold. Let's figure yours out together. Our position as leaders is that it's my job to make sure everybody in my building can do their job. That's my position. And I think that that lends to a really easy way for me to remember that they're a person because they can't do their job if there's garbage happening at home and they need a little bit of grace. They can't do their job if they're in physical pain all the time. And if there's a way that I can step in for that, or maybe they need to go see another doctor or how can I help? My job is to help them do their job and their job is to serve our customers. So how do I help them be a full human and show up and then serve the full humans who are on the other end of the phone or the email.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. You're right. You're right. I, I agree with that. And you talk a lot about empathy. Do you believe, Kristen, then, that you, some people have it and some can learn it, or some people have it and some people don't?
1: So we don't actually think empathy has anything to do with emotions. We think instead empathy is is cognitive. It's a decision. So everybody can learn it. So do you maybe, do you have, are you somebody who innately just, you know, likes people more, then you'll probably have an easier time choosing to understand them rather than judge them. But it is a skill, just like reading, just like any other mental process, learning a language. It's a skill that you can develop if you choose to. No one is born with it or not born with it.
0: Yes. Okay. So it's a skill that it can be learned. If I like people, it doesn't mean that I am good at empathy.
1: No, it just means that you maybe have a natural predisposition to it. Okay. But you still got to work at it. I have all the training. I'm the social worker. I'm the pastor. I'm like all of the things that say I know how to do human. And I still have to work at it a a lot. And there are days where I'm just terrible at it. And I don't want to think that anyone's a human. And I just want to go, especially on airplanes with small children. That is the quickest way for me to get real judgy and real gross really fast. And I have to sit there and say, I don't know their lives. I don't know why they're here. I don't know what's going on. <sighs> <laughs> and then I let it go. We all have those things. I'm really good at offering empathy for some populations that like my best friend isn't. And so we help each other. Like her fuse is shorter with one group than mine is and vice versa. It's a constant learning process.
0: Wow. Interesting. And I wanted to ask you also about this culture pop I wanted to know what your opinion you have because lately I've been listening to Latin music. So wonder if you know anything about the lyrics on how they have changed and how they position women versus before.
1: Most of my exposure to Latin music comes through listening to a lot of Gloria Stefan in the nineties. Okay. So I'm not particularly versed in it. I will say in pop music, in general, kind of generic pop music. I am consistently encouraged by the way that women are being given voices. I think about like what Taylor Swift had to go through versus what Olivia Rodrigo can sing. If I look at the evolution of Britney Spears to Taylor Swift to Olivia Rodrigo, what we're allowed to talk about as women, I think I'm really excited about, but I am not very versed in Latin and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to pretend otherwise as humans change our art does too. Not surprising.
0: Yes. I wanted to, you continue with your story. So you said you have been in the TED Talks, you are you're a writer, you have your a portion of your family business talking about empathy and offer courses to people as well.
1: Yeah, we do trainings and keynotes, and then we have a YouTube channel and a podcast.
0: Yes. We, and you are married to a North Irish man.
1: I am. A fellow named John. Yep.
0: And then you also talk about privilege of being white and then not so when being a woman is, is now number one, but getting out there. And then you were saying that you're married, so that's a privilege. And then you said, but you chose not to have kids, which it makes you not in the privilege part. Can you talk a little bit more about yeah. that? Because I feel that nowadays a lot of women have decided, well, we don't want to have kids. And, you know, in cultures like Latin cultures it's much stronger, like, well, oh, you're not going to have kids. And that's, you know, a scene that just, you're seen down for that. What What is your take on that?
1: Yeah. So it was a very kind of scary moment for me to put that in my first TEDx. It's the same thing. Like I called myself fat on stage and that was really a bold move for me. So I've known I haven't wanted children since I was 11. Some of it is that my mother is a gold star A plus mother. And I look at her and I'm like, oh, that's not not me. So what I really realized is I'm just not called to it. I think parenthood should be a calling. I think you should really go into it intentionally. And I just never wanted it. I love kids. I love playing with them. I love hanging out with them. I was a youth worker for years. Like I said, I worked with, I love middle school kids. I'm one of the weird ones that loves middle school kids. I love them all. And then I really, really like to sleep at night. It's just not my calling. What I mean it others me is that, you know, for some people it's outright rude. Like I get asked a lot about it, especially when we were still in Northern Ireland, like strangers would ask me, but we see kids and reproductive choices as small talk. So one of the reasons I am so loud about it is to protect all of my friends for whom it is a very emotional decision. I will turn around. So someone's like, well, why aren't you having kids? And I'll turn around and be like, explain to me how this is your business. And I'll kind of really call it out because I have so many friends that have struggled with infertility. So many friends who want desperately to have kids and are remortgaging their home right now to go through the adoption process. It doesn't cost me any emotional pain to be really upfront about this. And it might cost them quite a lot. I can do this. I can help change the conversation where kids are not small talk necessarily. You ask like, do you have any kids? And somebody goes, no, you don't dig. Well, why not? Are you planning any? It's not your business. In the same way that like marriage is not a small talk. You don't ask a single person when they're going to get married. That's rude. It's hurtful. It's harmful. You don't know their trauma. But also at women's networking events, I'm usually the only woman not in the room without kids. So I am automatically excluded from a whole lot of conversations because people just naturally talk about their kids. And no one kind of turns around and asks me questions about my work or asks me questions about my hobbies. If I don't have kids, they don't have to talk to me about. Yeah. And so I've got nieces and nephews and I have friends with kids who, you know, they jokingly let me steal their stories for small talk purposes. But what I would really love it is if kids weren't small talk uh-huh. and we could come Up with especially as mutual as professional women if we could we come up with other ways to bond honestly it's so refreshing to me when when I'm in a relationship a professional relationship with a woman and it's like six months before I know she has a kid yes like it's mind-boggling and beautiful to me I want to know you and I want to know the fullness of you but there's a difference between centering your children yes in our relationship which then others me and makes me feel really uncomfortable or celebrating things about me that mean as much to me as your kids mean to you?
0: I understand you very well. I I never thought I will have kids or it wasn't a plan. Really try not to bring that into conversation. It actually bugs me because I'm thinking, oh, here we go. We're going to talk about them. And there's so many more interesting things to talk when somebody asks, uh, do you have a kid? And the other person said, no, I don't. I always make the comment, oh, you're the smart one. They always get surprised because you choose to to take care of yourself, to give to the world and in a different ways. It, and it's because also in my family, my parents and my grandparents were never into like, when are you getting married? When are you having kids?
1: My mom especially was the same way, like when a lot of my friends were getting married in their early twenties and my mom was like, oh my God, wait, (laughs) like, wait, have your twenties travel, see the world, you know? So yeah, my husband and I chose passport stamps over kids. Our money looks a lot different than my brother who has two kids under five. My life looks a lot different from a lot of my friends and people say, how do you do it all? And I, it's very honestly, I don't have kids, pets, or plants. Like I don't, I don't take care. I'm not responsible for keeping anything alive, but myself. Like I married a self-sufficient human who can keep himself alive. I don't know. Nothing relies on me for life. And so I can do what is best for me at any given time and remind other people that that's not selfish. It just might require more strategy in your life than it might require in mine. But at the same time, there are organizations I've been in where I was given two or three times the labor that I should have been because I didn't have kids. And so I must have free time where I wasn't allowed to leave for my best friend's mom's funeral because that wasn't family. No, that's my family. I should be, you know, allowed to do that that kind of thing. So we're very bad at understanding how humans do relationships with each other. Assuming that women have and or want kids is only one of the ways.
0: Yes, that's true. I think it's an old way, old fashioned way, but I hope that it's changing. I think we need many decades still to change. It's going very slow, but it's going, it's going there. As change always does. Yes, that's true. Great. Now you are here to change the world, to help people think about more diversity. Or more inclusion, to learn about inclusion, empathy. What else are you planning to do?
1: Yeah, just complete world domination. (laughs) No, what we'd really love is for people to have a good, solid understanding of empathy. We'd love to do for empathy what Brene Brown did for vulnerability, where people have a more operationalized understanding of it now. Um, But we're hoping to do, we're doing some online trainings a lot right now um, some really kind of ways for people to enter into this conversation. We've got an online masterclass in the fall where, you know, for about six hours, we're going to talk about what empathy really is and how to unpack it and how to make it happen in your life. And we'll be doing more of those. And then I speak a lot. Aaron and I do workshops a lot at different places. Aaron's my best friend and business partner. We just want to keep doing that. We want to fly around the world and have hard conversations with people about how to human better. That's the dream.
0: Wonderful. Yes, I'm sure it's going to (laughs) happen. Thank you. Let's talk about Aaron, because you said your best friend, but you said you had a lot of best friends when you were younger. And then they said that they were, you were, they, they broke up with you because you were needy. But Aaron seems to be the good one.
1: Aaron seems to be good. Yeah, I didn't have a lot of very good friends until college. I had a lot of acquaintances. And then I had a lot of people who told me I was too much for them. <laughs> in college, I met a really wonderful girl who taught me how to be friends with people in a really beautiful way. And then that set me up to ending up, I met Aaron about 10 years ago when we were both first moved to Northern Ireland to do our postgraduate work. And yeah, we are very different. I think it really helped that we met in our late 20s. And so we knew each ourselves fairly well. So we could set some boundaries pretty quickly. But there's nobody on the planet who understands me the same way that she does, even my husband. We are, oh, we are so different. But we see the world very similarly. So she's an extreme introvert. She lives with her mom. She has no real interest in networking events or making a ton of friends or or things like that. She watches TV a lot. So a lot of the things I said I don't do, she does. But we work together so well. The other member of our team is a girl named Eleanor who's also an introvert. I am the circus director in a certain way and they are the people behind the scenes making sure everything happens. And they keep me on track and they keep me healthy and and they make sure that I'm, I'm okay, which is really, really beautiful. I've now learned the beauty of being friends with people who are really different than me, as long as they can respect our differences and we can embrace our differences and no one's trying to change the other person.
0: You usually are attractive to whatever you don't have Mm -hmm. to compliment you. And so you and Aaron and your other partner, they make a perfect human being too.
1: Yeah. If there's so many things they do that I'm really jealous of that I wish I could do, but we are all in our zones of genius and really to steal a, a really business phrase right now uh, and
0: we're all really happy yes wonderful I, I love when people have the best friend and they are always together and working together That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And we live apart. We live five hours apart. So we're just very good at communicating uh, over the internet.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Great. Great. So Kristen, thank you for being here and and for enlightening us and me with all the knowledge that you have. I would definitely be a fan and keep following you.
1: It was a really beautiful, really, really beautiful time. Thank you for this privilege. Thanks for holding this space for stories. I think it's so life changing. So thank you so much for having me. Maybe see how many more books can I read? (laughs) don't pressure yourself everybody's got their joy we'll see thanks again thank you
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode I am Daniela and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved when you think of that person shoot them a text with the link of this podcast this would allow the ordinary magic to go further Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto.